The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I mean, I do think this entire process that I describe uh, suggests that there are certain norms that we have in a separation of power system like the United States that we've seen a deterioration as a result of polarization. You know, there's a lot of scholarship these days talking about the decline of American democracy, and much of it focuses on the decline of uh, separation of powers norms. And I think this decline of the, the treaty power fits with that, but it's really sort of the ramp up of the decline in the past uh, 15 years that we've seen that clearly fits that approach. I mean, for the longest time, you know, polarization has been a problem for you know, a couple of decades or so. But it's only been recently uh, that we've seen it uh, be especially problematic. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 8, 2023. The Constitution specifies only one process for making international agreements. Article 2 gives the President the power to make treaties, provided that two-thirds of the Senators present concur. The treaty process has been on a long, slow path to obsolescence having been replaced by various forms of binding and non-binding executive agreements. To assess the causes and impact of the United States' declining use of treaties, I sat down with Jeffrey Peake, a political scientist at Clemson University, who is the author of the book Dysfunctional Diplomacy, The Politics of International Agreements in an Era of Partisan Polarization. We discussed how domestic politics explains the decline of the treaty power, the adverse impact this decline has on U.S. foreign relations, and why executive agreements of various sorts are not full substitutes for treaties on the international stage. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 8th, Treaties and Dysfunctional Diplomacy. Jeff, your book is about how domestic politics adversely impacts U.S. power to make international agreements and how that in turn adversely affects U.S. power on the international stage. And we'll get to that in a second, but before we get to that, I want to just define some terms for the audience. We're going to be talking, and this is a simplification of a complicated world, of three basic types of agreements, what we call treaties, which are agreements made by the president with the advice and and consent of two-thirds of the senators present. That's from Article 2. That's an Article 2 power. We're going to be talking about executive agreements, which subsumes a whole variety of agreements but primarily uh, agreements that are so-called ex-anti-congressional executive agreements where Congress in advance authorizes the president to make international agreements. And both of those types of agreements are legally binding on the international stage. The third type of agreement is called non-binding agreements or political commitments. And these are agreements made by the president uh, on his own with other countries that don't are not binding under international law. Did I get those definitions right? Yeah, that's how I see them. Okay. Okay, so tell us what your book's about. The title is called Dysfunctional Diplomacy. What's the claim? So U.S. diplomacy is dysfunctional. Uh, Basically, in looking at the trends in treaties, we see a significant decrease or a near abandonment of Article II treaties. And presidents use unilateral and constitutionally dubious tools in order to finalize a whole host of international agreements. So in place of treaties, we see almost all international agreements are either the executive agreement variety or the non-binding agreement variety. 
Uh, the change is largely, I argue, due to domestic politics, uh, largely partisan polarization, uh, which is defined as a separation of the two parties ideologically. This partisan polarization has broken the treaty process and increased the incentives for presidential unilateralism in this area. And this has uh, significant consequences for American leadership in, in international law. Okay, let's break this down. So just give us some of the numbers about uh, the decline of the use of the treaty power. This, is, In other words, of the president not going to the Senate with an agreement and of the Senate not consenting to agreements. Just tell us some of the – just give us a flavor of some of the numbers that, that document the decline of the use of treaties. Sure. So uh, from 1949 onward to about 2008, the average – uh, president, the typ- typically in a two-year Congress, the president would submit about 32 treaties. Since Obama, uh, the average has been about eight treaties in a two-year period. So we've seen a vast reduction in the number of treaties submitted. Uh, at the same time, uh, we have not seen a reduction or a significant reduction in terms of executive agreements. Uh, I don't have uh, very good data on non-binding agreements. I, I know there's some other really good work going on regarding non-binding agreements. But the concern is that there might be substitution effects going on or or whatnot with regard to the president skirting uh, congressional requirements for approval. So that's the, that's the one side of it. The presidents are using treaties much less often. And then when they do submit the treaties, particularly since Obama, they've uh, been less successful. So Obama's success rates are the worst ever of any president uh, in submitting treaties. President Trump submitted only a handful of treaties during his four years as president, so it's really hard to gauge his success rates. Uh, and then Biden has only submitted three treaties uh, since he's been president. Okay, and your claim is is that these treaties are not being submitted as often and they're not being consented to as often because of a spike in polarization in the Senate. Is that right? So it's been a long-term increase or trend in polarization. And the reason I make this claim, uh, I mean, the data on polarization is pretty clear how we measure it in political science. Uh, back in the early 20th century, we also saw uh, significant polarization. Uh, it's greater now than it was then, at least as, as how we measure it in political science. We saw very few treaties ratified in the Senate then as well. So it's really a problem on both ends of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, presidents are incentivized not to submit their treaties. And of course, the Senate needs treaties in order to ratify, you know, in order to approve. But when presidents do submit them, at least since Obama, you know, they haven't seen much success. Okay. And that's the first half of the thesis. And the second half of the thesis is the shift away from treaties to other forms of international agreements has harmed the United States on the international stage. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I argue. Now, that's a lot harder to show empirically. Uh, It's actually not that hard to show that uh, empirically, the partisan polarization is the reason for this, uh, using all kinds of regression analyses with the data that we have. Uh, it's, it's pretty evident. It's much harder to show uh, systematically the effect or the consequences of this for American leadership. But I argue that because presidents are unable to complete their commitments with legislative support, that diminishes uh, their legitimacy domestically. Uh, it, it's a less democratic process. It opens it up for, uh, you know, the other party to basically say that presidents are acting the king and therefore, you know, we didn't sign on to this agreement. So we're going to go ahead and get rid of the agreement when, when we hold the White House. And we've seen that happen a couple of, you know, with the Trump administration following Obama's presidency. So that diminishes uh, the, pre- the uh, U.S. leadership abroad, uh, also because the United States is not party to a lot of multilateral agreements. They're, they don't participate in the organizations these agreements set up in order to set international law on a whole host of issues. And, and there are several great examples of this. Uh, but the United States, in, in the words of some international law specialists, is kind of on the outside looking in on, on creation of some uh, international law. Okay, so let me ask some, some questions, some critical questions about the thesis. So you're you're absolutely right, obviously, and you're the master of these numbers, that the treaty power has 
declined and it's declined sharply, especially beginning in the Obama administration. And you, you show these numbers, but as your numbers also show, and as we know from other databases, the treaty to power has basically been in decline since the founding. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but in the first 50 years, the treaty was the dominant form of international agreement going to the Senate, getting two-thirds approval. And it's basically been a long-term generic decline ever since then. And, you know, the number, I think you correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think the number since World War II or so has been that treaties have only been about 6% of all U.S. agreements. So my, my question is, tell me which parts of that, those empirical claims are wrong, but why isn't this part of a broader trend and not something that's, that we should just be focusing on the last 10 years of? So I wrote a book with Glenn Krutz on the 20th century and the rise of executive agreements. And we were largely positive about this whole situation. Uh, we argued that uh, the rise of executive agreements, which you know at that time uh, made up 94% of all binding international agreements, so 6% were treaties. Uh, we argued that the Senate and the president had basically worked out a situation or a, a basic norm, we argue, that the president would when the Congress asked the Senate or the president would send to the Senate really significant treaties. So a, a significant share of their important international agreements uh, were sent to the Senate for ratification or for approval, I should say. And uh, they would still complete most of their international agreements as executive agreements. Uh, when, when the Senate squawked about it or complained about it or when Congress complained, presidents typically would relent and then submit it as a treaty. That changed with the Obama presidency. So while the numbers aren't that radically different, what we've seen is that the share of treaties have gone down, just the raw numbers of treaties have gone down, but there's also the nature of the politics. And when you get into the case studies, you see this, that the, the nature of the political process within treaty approval is very different than what I observed in looking at the second half of the 20th century. So say more about that. What's, what's the difference? Well, I mean, of course, treaties, sometimes when they're controversial, you're going to have regular old party politics, right? I mean, we know this from the, the Carter trying to get the, uh, the Panama Canal treaties through, for example, or, or Clinton trying to get the uh, chemical weapons ban or the, the comprehensive test ban treaties through. So sometimes partisan politics play an important role in the treaty process. Probably the most famous treaty that's ever failed in the U.S. Senate uh, was a result of partisan politics, and that was the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. So you're right in your original notion that the treaty process, because it requires such a supermajority, has been a difficult process for presidents when a treaty is controversial. However, it didn't mean the absence of treaties entirely, and it didn't mean that presidents wouldn't try to get moved treaties through the Senate and involve the Congress in making international law. And that's essentially what we're seeing right now. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate about some of this. You've got a chart in your book that is a graph going back to 1879 or so that tracks polarization. And the polarization now in the Senate is only a little bit higher than it was in the late 19th century. That was a period of small decline in the treaty power. You know, there was a there was a dip during that period, a generic dip that goes back to the early part of the century in the use of the treaty power in the late nineteenth century. But so I'm just I'm just wondering how you know that polarization is the explanatory variable. I'm sure it has something to do with it, but aren't there broader trends in international law and international relations against ratification? I mean, the United States has been moving away from models of legislative consent for agreements for a very long time. So how, two questions. How can you separate out the role that polarization plays in the sharp decline of the treaty power? And how can you rule out, you know, these other generic factors that seems to be pushing against legislative consent more generally? So, I mean, that's a very good question. And, you know, some of this goes into sort of the empirical tests that we do statistically. But in terms of just eyeballing the data, like you're talking about with regard to the mm -hmm. chart, uh, if you do look at the treaty process, and what happened during the early 20th century with the Roosevelt administration and the Wilson administration, you actually saw quite a few treaty failures. And 
a lot of those were partisan affairs. So if you read some of the political science uh, from then, everything was qualitative at the time, but they point to partisan politics. And then from about the 30s through, I would say, almost the, the Bush administration, uh, the most recent Bush administration, there was kind of an equilibrium where the president, and this is what we argued in our first book, that the president would, again, submit most of their agreements or complete most of their agreements as executive agreements. But then again, when Congress was concerned or initiated some concerns about whether or not an agreement would be a treaty or an executive agreement, presidents would go ahead and go along with it or would go ahead and submit it as a treaty. And this, uh, the, the, the whole nature of this changed with the Obama administration and just watching the Obama administration deal with Congress or not deal, I should say, with Congress with regard to treaties. Uh, they were stung by the uh, CRPD, the Disabilities Treaty. They worked really hard to get the New START Treaty through, uh, something that prior presidents had gotten bilateral arms control agreements through uh, quite easily. Uh, in fact, there were six total votes against these types of arms control agreements dating back to the 1970s, total, all of these agreements. And then Obama got his treaty through, the New START Treaty through just barely with six votes. And he had to give up a lot in order to get that treaty through. So when you read the case studies of these different treaties, it really adds a lot of, of uh, additional information and sort of flavor to what type of politics is going on. And then you, when you look at the literature on you know, different types of agreements, particularly arms control agreements. You say that Democrats tend to do poorly because Republicans are open to oppose them. Whereas when Republican presidents push treaties, and there were, you know, it used to be that Republican presidents would push treaties, uh, Republicans would be on board, so they had it easy. Uh, Democrats in the Senate typically are, are, are very favorable to uh, ratifying treaties, uh, whereas most of the opposition uh, is clearly coming from the, the right of the, of, uh, of the Republican Party. So there was a clear partisan. And, you know, the partisan nature of it existed back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we saw this with uh, some of the human rights treaties I examined in my book. It's just, it's a matter of degree. And I think it's reached a tipping point where presidents are at a position where they can just go ahead and avoid the Senate altogether. But one way they avoid the Senate altogether is through congressional executive agreements or which are congressionally authorized agreements or sole executive agreements, which are authorized by Article 2, why aren't, why aren't those pure substitutes? Why don't they, you know, if the president can't get through the Senate, why doesn't he just go to Congress? Are, are you suggesting that, and get a statute, are you suggesting that there is a political bar there too and the presidents just stop after the Senate? Or are you suggesting that there's some other reason why they don't go to Congress for bicameralism and presentment as opposed to just getting Senate consent? Well, I mean, I think, so this is like two separate questions, right? So there's the argument yep. that just, just a statute would be easier than the two-thirds requirement in the Senate. Uh, keep in mind that if it is controversial, it's actually a three-fifths requirement. You know, it's not just a majority in the Senate. We have a 60-vote Senate these days. But it really has to do with politics, right? Because we know presidents are, are unconstrained legally on their choice of a treaty or a congressional executive agreement. Um, so the question is, well, why wouldn't they just use executive agreements all the time? And what we've learned in our analysis, and as political scientists, of course, we're less concerned about the law, but more concerned about sort of the politics of it, right? So what's structuring the president's decision in, in the case of treaties or the executive branch more broadly? And uh, we find that, that international partners often prefer treaties to an executive agreement particularly a, not, uh, a ex-ante congressional agreement, one that doesn't require congressional approval. They're more likely, to, a lot of times, they've indicated they want a treaty because a treaty suggests domestic buy-in that a unilaterally approved agreement does not. And so even though both agreements are binding under international law, uh, politically, it doesn't necessarily seem that way, right? And so we also know that members of Congress see treaties as more significant than they see executive agreements. They often mistake executive agreements as being non-binding and when they talk about them. But we know that, of course, they are binding 
uh, international agreements. So there are lots of reasons, and most of these are political reasons for why presidents would go the treaty route. And they also, at least during the 20th century, wanted to protect this unilateral tool that they had. So one reason they would not just go hog wild and do everything as an executive agreement was because they want, A, they they didn't want to be seen as abusing their authority because they didn't want Congress to take that authority away from them. One interesting relationship we find is there used to be something or there is something called the evasion hypothesis, the idea that presidents would evade the Senate when they had divided government or when the other party controlled the Senate. And what we've learned is that it's the exact opposite empirically. In fact, presidents tend to send more treaties to the Senate when government is divided, which is the exact opposite prediction of of, uh, the evasion hypothesis. And the reason we argue that that occurs is because under unified government, when their party controls the Senate, uh, presidents are given a great deal more leeway in using unilateral powers. And we see this with regard to executive orders. We see this with regard to other forms of unilateral authority that presidents employ. So I take those sort of what we learned in the unilateral presidency and apply those lessons to the treaty power uh, in making those arguments. Okay, that was a great explanation. And let me just pick up on something you said at the beginning. You distinguished between the way lawyers approach these problems and the way political scientists approach these problems. And that's, these are you know problems of understanding trends and in international agreement making and the causal explanations for the trends and the impacts on the international stage. So you read a lot of law review articles, and but you're in a different world. You're in the political science world. Can you characterize uh, you know the differences in approaches? I mean, is there a way to talk generally about the types of arguments and types of approaches that political scientists take and how they differ from lawyers or law professors? So that's a great question. So this is a multidisciplinary question in many respects, right? And in, in political science, it crosses two subfields. In fact, the uh, co-author I had mentioned, Glenn Crutes, he studies the U.S. Congress. I study the presidency and foreign policy. Um, neither of us are international relations experts. So a lot of the interest in political science in this particular project come from international relations experts who are interested in U.S. foreign policy or why is it that the U.S. isn't participating in these international agreements? And so what's funny is political scientists across subfields often don't talk to one another, uh, let alone between international law scholars and political scientists. So it's been a really interesting sort of experience writing in this topic, uh, writing on this particular field. And, you know, I was was very heartened uh, when you were interested in the, uh, the project because and the first book actually sold a lot for law libraries, which I thought was outstanding. I had no idea that there would be as much interest in this work by international law scholars, uh, the law school type, which is cool. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for that. But in terms of, see, political scientists are also interested in questions of presidential power and authority and that kind of thing. But where, but but so are lawyers. So are lawyers. So are law professors. I'm just trying to understand how you think about these problems differently. To the, when you read law review articles and then you read political science work, whether it's domestic politics or comparative or IR, I mean, I read both of these literatures also. I'm just wondering if you could characterize how you see your approach is different from the typical law professor's approach. So we're, we're focused more on uh, presidential behavior and presidential decision-making and sort of what structures the president and deciding to do a, take a particular action and then how, why is Congress going to respond the way it responds? Um, so not that long ago, the political science institutions had more of a behavioral revolution, if you will, where we focused more on these behavioral questions as opposed to sort of the institutional questions related to authority. But for the longest time, studying the presidency was you know, Thomas Cronin and, you know, what, what, what can, and what can presidents do and what can't they do? Right. And we've moved a lot, we've moved away from that, uh, significantly, but because recent, uh, scholarship is focused more on the unilateral presidency or the president using these unilateral tools, whether they be executive agreements in this case, or executive orders in the case of a lot of domestic policy, because we've seen, there's been an explosion of research in that area. Uh, there's been more interest in sort of what presidents can and can't do 
among political scientists. So, I mean, that's a bit sort of navel gazing in some respects. No, that's what I wanted to know. I mean, the reason, I mean, I first reached out to you about a dozen years ago, maybe 15 years ago, because it was, I think it was in the late 2000, maybe it was in the early 2010s. I came across your work because it was very hard at the time to actually know something empirical, <laughs> to actually know what the reality was of what agreements the president was making and when and what the long-term trends were. Ona Hathaway was doing important work then. She was doing a lot of empirical work on treaties and international agreements. You were doing some at, at about the same time. But I stumbled across your work and it was just a revelation because you could actually have numbers and see patterns and actually understand what was going on. And then, you know, as a lawyer, we try to figure out whether this is lawful and why and what these trends mean. But that's why, you know, we were interested in your work primarily because of of the empirical side of things. So, yeah. So the, on the treaty side of things, things are actually pretty clear, right? So empirically, we yes. can get the numbers yes. of treaties. That's no problem. Everything's transparent and open. Explain why that's so easy before you get to explaining why the other stuff is so hard. Why is it so, because the readers won't, the listeners won't understand this. Why is it so easy? And it has been easy for a long time to know what the numbers are on the treaties. Because every, every time a president submits a treaty to the Senate or the, the way the process works is the president signs a treaty, or I should say his agent signs the treaty. And then the president has to transmit that to the Senate and they write a transmittal document where they explain you know, why it is the Senate should approve the treaty. And that's all documented on the congress.gov website. It's very easy to count the number of treaties submitted because there's a presidential document. And then, of course, you can follow the treaty in the legislative process or in the Senate process. Uh, they all get submitted to the same committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, that's where they sit for a long time, usually. And uh, we can measure how long they stay there and based on when the committee issues a report, if it ever does. And then once the committee issues its report, of course, there's typically reservations and understandings, et cetera. Uh, those things can, have, can be really, really important or change the treaty in some respects for American law. And then that uh, goes to the floor and very quickly, usually uh, treaties are disposed of, meaning they're approved on the floor of the Senate. Uh, the typical treaty only takes about a week or two to get through the floor process, whereas uh, it might take months or even years to get through the committee process. That's very different than the legislative process uh, in that most bills, they go to a committee and then they're never heard of again. Uh, uh, treaties typically get through the process eventually uh, until recently. And that's why when I say the, pro the character of the process has changed quite a bit, uh, when you put polarization in there as a variable to try to explain the duration of this process, you see that polarization really stands out as an important contributor. Oh, so the data is quite clear on treaties, but when it comes to executive agreements, it's very unclear. It's, I mean, I, I relied a lot on the Department of State website. Thankfully, you all published uh, uh, a list of treaties based off a FOIA request you did. So you say you all, you're, you're referring to an article by me and Ona Hathaway and Kurt Bradley. That's correct. In which we used a Freedom of Information Act request to get just information on lots of agreements going back, uh, I think, to about 2000. And the reason we had to use FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, to get these non-treaty executive agreements was precisely because of the problems you're talking about. They, it, we just The public really doesn't have a complete sense of how many of these things the president makes or what they look like. So that's what you're referring to. Yeah, that's correct. So the publicly available data was very limited, right? And, it, you know, it was incomplete. And the FOIA request that you all, that uh, you and your co-authors were able to provide or, or, you know, get that extra data expanded our data set considerably on executive agreements. So uh, in the book, we, we use a data set, a little over 3000 executive agreements completed from the second uh, George W. Bush administration. So 2005 through 2020. And, but I'm still not confident that we've gotten all of the executive agreements because the Obama administration was lax in, in reporting a lot of these agreements. And of course, the Trump administration, I imagine, was as well. Right. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers, with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off 
is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So going back to the theme of polarization as the explanatory variable for the treaty process breaking down, you have case studies on the Law of the Sea Convention, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, various environmental treaties, various arms control treaties. These are all hugely important agreements that failed in the Senate, right? Yeah, they either either failed or have gone nowhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, failed because they haven't been consented to. And you basically tell a deep dive story about how the domestic politics got in the way of these agreements. That's correct. Right? Yeah. So here's my question. This is a normative question. And I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not, this is a little bit outside your book, but you seem to think this is a, you do seem to think that this is a problem that the, the fact that the United States isn't able to make these important agreements, you see it as a failure as a, a bug rather than a feature. But of course, the whole reason the framers made the two-thirds requirement was to, to have a very high bar and to ensure that the poli- there was such an overwhelming consensus in the country and that the treaties that the president was bringing to the Senate would really serve the national interest. And so they, they had a high bar on purpose because they wanted to bias against making these agreements. So how do you know that these failures are failures rather than evidence of success of the system working? That's my question. Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of ways of knowing this uh, that might be supporting uh, my argument. I mean, I think you make a very good point. And of course, I, I maybe don't get enough, give enough credence to that argument uh, in the book. So that's, that's on me. But I, I would argue that the two thirds requirement in the Senate is just a mistake. I mean, the framers, first of all, could not have known that the United States would be in the leadership position that it is in terms of world, you know, international law. They couldn't envision this, and uh, the liberal order that exists as, as a result of the, you know, the framework following World War II does serve U.S. interests. And but the inability of Americans to participate in international law uh, leads to all all kinds of problems. So. So if you compare the United States ratification process to other countries, I think there are maybe two or three others that have a supermajority requirement in one chamber. Every other state that's democratized since the Constitution was written has a different process. Typically, not every other, but more than the, the couple that I mentioned. So most just require regular old legislation. So I think regular old legislation would be the way to do it. I mean, it's how we make commitments domestically. It's how, how commitments are made to the public generally, and to give uh, a very small minority a veto on international law is problematic because, I mean, you can run the math and you get 34 senators representing, you know, the smallest states. You end up with less than 10% of the senators representing less than 10% of the population blocking a treaty. So even where there's a great deal of consensus among the American public or even among legislators, uh, you don't see a whole lot of, uh, or you see no action. And the two-thirds requirement also really opens it up for uh, extremists, uh, in this case on the right, to uh, block treaties. So we, we see a, a significant amount of pull by the Heritage Foundation and other uh, right-leaning groups blocking treaties that have significant support domestically. The UN Close or the Law of the Sea Treaty is probably the best example of this, it has the support of the, uh, all the armed services, the executive branch, the oil industry, all kinds of industries, et cetera. And it's being blocked by 34 Republicans for reasons that don't relate to the treaty. And so I think it's one way to look at, express it the way you said, but once you get into the, the, the nitty gritty of the treaties and get into the details of the treaties, you, you learn that the U.S. is a, is in a much weaker position, uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the world as a result of this, uh, very, uh, I would say outdated, arcane process that was, uh, given to us by the framers. And it's the whole reason we came up with executive agreements in the first place was to get around the treaty process. Yeah. Let me just say a couple of things in response to that. I mean, I, you said at the, at the beginning that, 
it was just a mistake. The two-thirds requirement was just a mistake. I don't think it was a mistake for the reasons you gave. I mean, it wasn't a mistake when the United States was a weak power and was worried about international entanglements in 1789 and was worried about this new institution called the president being able to make agreements that wouldn't serve the national interest. But what you described after that, the United, the United States' position on the international stage changed dramatically. And the argument that we need a more efficient process to make international agreements to serve U.S. interests changed interest since the founding. The argument you made for that was, is, as you hinted at the end, was basically the argument that was made in the 20th century, especially in the New Deal period, for the switch to congressional executive agreements as opposed to treaties. So, again, I think what you're saying is not that the framers made a mistake. You can say that if you want, but I think of it as the U.S. position in the world changed. And, but we have had constitutional changes to that caught up with that. I mean, we do have the vast majority of agreements are congressional executive agreements. So it's not clear – it's still not clear to me why – uh, in that light, the Senate is the real roadblock if these things could be done by statute. Well, I can't say, I, I think you're right. I mean, we, we can't really blame the framers in the sense that how are they to know, Yeah, you know, given our current situation, right? So, but, you know, the Constitution is very, very difficult to change. And um, the, it's clear that the, the framers made certain error, errors in the in writing the Constitution, but that's a whole different that's a whole different uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, can of worms. Right. Okay. So let me ask you this. There's several trends going on at once. There's the decline of the treaty power in favor of congressional executive or executive agreements more generally binding on the international stage. We could probably talk more about executive agreements because I think presidents are using those because, um, you know, ex ante versus ex post approval, almost of all of them are ex ante approval, right? But as we know through your, through your work and uh, your good work with Bradley and, and Hathaway, uh, that so many of the arguments, or the I should say, the, the what they're saying, we have the authority to complete this binding agreement, is linked very tenuously to domestic law, if at all. So, so many of the agreements that are made that they link to to domestic law, uh, the laws aren't clear. So, the the notion of President's making binding agreements willy-nilly without any input from Congress, even when they're congressional executive agreements, I would argue that in many in many ways they are. That that connection back to statute is so unclear that yeah. presidents essentially aren't constrained in their use of executive agreements. But non-binding agreements like the Paris Agreement and the Iran deal are even a step away from what you were just talking about. You were just talking about examples where Congress in a very dim, abstract way authorizes the president in advance to make international agreements. And that doesn't impose very many constraints on the president, but at least it has a basis in something Congress did. Non-binding agreements are agreements that the president makes on his own authority without consulting Congress, without asking Congress for permission. And he could make them on just about any topic. Tell us about how that trend impacts your thesis. Right. So... (laughs) So this is actually kind of a new area for me. Um, in fact, it wasn't until I read your work on Paris and in Iran that I started exploring this idea of non-binding agreements. There isn't a lot of work in political science on non-binding agreements. We, you know, typically the people will list a, a bunch of gentlemen's agreements or other sorts of non-binding agreements and say that they're legally non-binding. They're just political commitments. Um, but then when you learn that Paris and Ar- the Iran agreement are non-binding political commitments, you're like, whoa, hold on a second. Those are really, really important uh, international agreements. And didn't Obama commit us to something there uh, in 2015 when he completed these agreements? And uh, I think a lot of members of Congress thought that we were committed legally to these agreements as well. So during the 2015 and 2016, when this whole process was uh, going on, there was a lack of transparency about what the agreement would be. And there was a lot of, uh, I think even some law uh, professors got it wrong in terms of what form these agreements would take. And so, you know, members of Congress were, you know, still calling them binding executive agreements when they weren't. Of course, now we know that they weren't very binding because Trump left them so easily. 
Um, and just the work you're doing with Hathaway and, and Bradley, I think is unearthing this idea that there are a bunch of these, right? So binding agreements or non-binding agreements, I should say, are made without transparency. Presidents make these political commitments. Sometimes they read like a treaty or an executive agreement. Uh, so they, they might look binding, but they may not be so binding. And so it's very difficult for the layperson or even the scholar to figure out what, what an agreement is. So uh, it, there's a real problem with transparency. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we have a very good take empirically on how many of their, these there are. And uh, it's going to take some real digging, I think, to get, get to the trend data that you, that you all are looking at. So here's, the, here's something about your thesis that I don't understand. You just said that the Paris and Iran agreements were not very binding because Trump could leave them so easily. And there seems to be an assumption that treaties are some, and you talk about in the book, you said that dysfunctional diplomacy is a serious problem because the United States must be able to com complete binding agreements that can withstand the next presidential election. The idea is we need to be able to commit and commit with some certainty that is not subject to the whims of the election. Trump comes in and he just abrogates the Paris Agreement, abrogates the Iran Agreement, and it seems that it's not sticky and that's what makes it hard for us to commit. But the problem with that argument is the same thing is exactly true of binding agreements, including treaties. Trump abrogated the INF Treaty, the Open Skies Agreement, the Vienna Convention Optional Protocol, which I believe is a treaty, and the Iran Treaty of Amity. And I wouldn't say that in every instance, treaties are as easy to abrogate as non-binding agreements. But in many cases, as Trump showed, presidents can just abrogate those just as easily as a president can with a non-binding agreement. So what kind of commitments do treaties really entail? Well, first of all, they, because they involve the Senate, right, they, they provide some democratic buy-in, domestic buy-in from the legislature. These legislatures remember this from, you know, year to year. And so they're more likely to oppose a president just willy-nilly leading a treaty. Although we know uh, through case law that presidents have the authority to do this, that doesn't mean doing it is uh, politically painless or, or costless. But Trump's withdrawal do doctrine does threaten the overall legitimacy of treaties writ large uh, that are finalized by the president, because his actions have highlighted, I think, and you point out correctly, uh, the tenuous nature of international law uh, in the U.S. system. Uh, presidents can leave these things without uh, much fanfare. However, Congress is much more likely to oppose it. They have some legal grounds to do it, depending on the type of agreement. For example, when President Trump left Paris, there was still a process, right? He announced uh, he was leaving Paris or announced the United States would leave Paris. But then for two years, uh, it wasn't official until because of the binding part of that agreement. Paris, as you well know, is a, is a hybrid uh, agreement. It's a binding executive agreement in some respects, but then a non-binding commitment uh, in other respects with you know, the real important stuff uh, regarding carbon emissions and whatnot. But he announced we were going to leave, and then it wasn't two years later until we actually officially left following the 2020 election. In fact, it was the day after the 2020 election uh, that we officially left that agreement. And then, of course, Biden was able to rejoin the agreement, you know, uh, just by, with a stroke of a pen. In terms of Iran, that's a real interesting case, as you well know. I mean, Congress squawked about it. They, they wanted to be involved in the process. They passed the Iran, uh, they, they passed law uh, inserting themselves into the process. But what transpired there was they uh, created, I wouldn't say it's a congressional veto because it it really isn't. But the president had to bring the agreement to Congress. And then Congress had to, rather than pass a, a, an approval resolution, they had to pass a resolution of disapproval, which can then be vetoed by the president. So the check they put on this particular non-binding agreement was quite weak and because it could be uh, vetoed by the president. Uh, that particular disapproval resolution, I should say, failed in the Senate because of a filibuster. So 
Obama didn't have to exercise a veto in that case. But it does highlight a problem. So when you look at, say, the WHO, the World Health Organization, our membership there, we're actually, uh, that's part of a binding agreement, uh, which is part of statute. When you look at NAFTA, it's a binding agreement that's part of statute through Congress. So the president can't just leave those agreements if in U.S. statute it says we're part of this agreement. So they can't just change in a, um, you know, domestic law uh, on their own. So when Congress has spoken, it, it gives it, you know, there's more authority to the agreement. And there are certain hurdles that presidents have to have to achieve in order to get out of, uh, of those particular uh, agreements. That's an excellent answer. And you pointed out that I actually misspoke when I said that the Paris Agreement was a non-binding agreement. As you said, it was a binding agreement. The framework itself was a binding agreement, but the core emissions reduction component was non-binding. But your general point is that it isn't just as easy for presidents to abrogate treaties and congressional executive agreements as it is to abrogate non-binding agreements because there are time limitations, which which Trump uh, respected. And for some types of agreements, especially ones that are tied to domestic legislation, it's not even clear that the president can abrogate or can abrogate easily. So you're right that on average, binding agreements give the agreement more credibility and stickiness than a non-binding agreement. So let me just ask you in, in wrapping up a little bit. So what what is your bottom line argument about the impact of the decline of treaties on U.S. foreign relations? Well, I mean, I do think this entire process that I describe uh, suggests that there are certain norms that we have in a separation of power system like the United States that we've seen a deterioration as a result of polarization. You know, there's a lot of scholarship these days talking about the decline of American democracy, and much of it focuses on the decline of uh, separation of powers norms. And I think this decline of the the treaty power fits with that, but it's really sort of the ramp up of the decline in the past uh, 15 years that we've seen that clearly fits that approach. I mean, for the longest time, you know, polarization has been a problem for you know a couple of decades or so, but it's only been recently uh, that we've seen it uh, be especially problematic. So I, th- I think uh, getting back to your question, the norms that developed in the 20th century we can't count on presidents or Congress to to follow norms that were developed last century uh, in foreign policy or in developing uh, policy generally. To do so really is kind of a fool's errand, right? So uh, to expect the institutions to get along, to, to expect some forbearance by the president where they're not going to totally use their powers full tilt uh, damn the consequences or or expect the parties to actually consider the other party uh, sort of a legitimate representative of half the population. And that type of political foray really wasn't seen in, in foreign policy nearly as often as, as it is these days, particularly in the area of, of treaties. So I do have a section in the end of my book where we talk about we were kind of wrong. See, in, the, in, the, in our first book, in our first book, we called people who were concerned about this process, the, the rise of executive agreements replacing treaties, we, we labeled them as alarmists, largely because there was this sort of bargain that existed between the presidency and Congress on how to treat really important international agreements. Congress would be involved. But that bargain has totally been blown away by partisan polarization. So I guess the alarmists had a point. And... Uh, I think the empirical evidence from the Obama administration uh, and Trump and, and Biden show this. I mean, I thought maybe perhaps naively that Biden would be different in some fashion, but, you know, he's only submitted three treaties to the Senate, even though he used to be, a, you know, the leader of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So he clearly sees that, uh, or I should say his administration clearly sees that Article II treaties are, you know, not the, not the way to go. So let me just point out that, you know, in, in being critical of a book you wrote 15 years ago, that is extremely admirable. Um, and you're very upfront about how your thesis in your 2009 book, your relatively benign attitude towards the decline of treaties there, you've rethought. I just think that's extremely admirable as a kind of scholarly value, and I congratulate you on it. We should all do that more, myself included. Let me just ask you, um, though, as a final question, 
So you're right. There's no doubt that you're right, that it's much harder for presidents to make international agreements, especially treaties, than ever before. And all the evidence points that way. I mean, how much harder, not clear, all the evidence points that way. And, you know, you make this interesting claim that the treaty process is basically of a piece with the decline of democratic institutions generally. And you also argue that it's hurt our international relations and that's, and it's hurt us foreign policy interests. And I have no doubt that it has in some, to some extent, but the amazing thing to me is, and maybe this is just a story of us power is despite, you know, we were a pain in the rear during the Paris agreement negotiations and we being the United States and the Iran deal negotiations because of our domestic politics, we had to have all these special accommodations to non-binding agreements. And then, and the world accommodated us and then Trump turns around and, and blows it off. So it wasn't sticky, even though Biden turned around and tried to implement it again. But my point is how much does it matter? Because the United States is no matter how dysfunctional is domestic politics presidential leadership remains vital on just about every international relations and international law front. The United States is amazingly a leader in expertise and development of the law of the sea, even though we're not in the treaty. And we're still a global leader in international environmental law, even though we often can't consent to or ratify these agreements. And we are, you know, the, the restart of the Iran deal agreement. We're right in the middle of that, leading that too. So, I mean, how much does, you know, it seems that we're still have a leadership role, even though we can't make this agreement. Do you think that's, is that accurate? And how much does that uh, temper your concerns? Well, I mean, obviously the United States being the most powerful state, you know, on the face of the earth is, gives us a lot of leeway to make mistakes, right? So yeah, we can't, you know, bind ourselves to these agreements and how long will these other states continue to follow the United States in perpetuity? I, I know we, we consider ourselves the essential nation, right? But when it comes to human rights law, are we really? Uh, when it comes to, obviously, UN close we are, right? Because we effectively enforce the treaty, even though we, we uh, have not ratified it. Uh, it's considered common law, right? I think that's the phrase it's used. Uh, Customary international law. Yeah. So see, I'm not an international lawyer, that's uh, fine. <laughs> but the, uh, but the United States Navy basically enforces you in close, right? So it's in many respects, it's, it's actually embarrassing uh, just to compare the United States is supposed to be this great champion for human rights, but it's the only country not to have fully ratified the, the rights of the child treaty or you know, we've got the greatest scientists on earth, but we're the only country not to have ratified the biodiversity treaty. And there's a lot going on right now with regard to the UN biodiversity treaty. And the United States is just an observer state. Yes, other states listen to us because we have these great scientists and scientists are, are free to, to go to these meetings without, you know, through NGOs and that kind of thing. So I think the United States will always be involved, but it does weaken our position in as you described, if we change a particular agreement such that it'll get approved at home, we weaken it, and then we don't bother ratifying it, that sends the wrong signal to the rest of the world. So the, the question is, how long does that last? Or so how long will those other countries follow American lead? And But you know, the answer to that might be a very long time. What you just described yep. about what you just described about UN human rights treaties didn't begin recently. That goes back to the genocide convention at the at the middle of the 20th century, which we took many decades before we ratified. And so, you know, the United States has been in this paradoxical position of being a leader in international law and a skeptic of international law at the same time for a very long time. I mean, your point is, I think that it's at a it's at a a new point and a new intensity, maybe a crisis point, but it is an old theme in in American politics. You're you're right about that. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to argue against that when you look at the case of the genocide treaty, or even the comprehensive test ban treaty. So, you know, the United States behaves differently on uh, weapons agreements, the the mine ban treaty, for example. But you know, there there are these advancements advancements in human rights in which the United States can lead 
Uh, and then there are other advancements in human rights, particularly the use of mines or, or cluster bombs in which the United States normatively would like to lead, but then puts itself in a position where it really cannot. And, you know, when we're faced off against China and Russia as our you know main opposing uh, forces, and they happen to be signed off on UN close or these other agreements, that does put us in a difficult position, I, th- I would argue, at the table when we're making these negotiations. Jeff Peake, thank you very much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and Lawfare No Bull. And of course, check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this, for this episode was Noam Band. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.